welcome to Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and with me, very special guest, Bill Ramos. He is our fifth uh, rep- legislative district representative and uh, originally from California, born and grew up in uh, East Oakland, and uh, he saw a lot of problems with students that they have down there when they don't have resources that they need. He went to Humboldt State University, got a bachelor's degree in forest sciences and biology, and guess what? No surprise. That's what brought him up here into the North Bend area, and he's been with us ever since. So welcome, Representative Rama. Thank you, Heather. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's uh, wonderful to have you, and thank you so much for making the time for us to have this conversation when we were uh, talking before we, when we were planning a, a date and a time to do this, you asked me what I was most interested in. So let's just get to it. Let's talk about those roads. You know, I interview King County representatives a lot, and we're being told that in another three years or so, there will be no money from King County to do road and bridge repair. And I'm gobsmacked by that. Um, when I've asked county officials about that situation, how did we get there, what, what's causing this, I'll be honest, they like to lay the blame at the feet of the state. That state uh, changed allocations for taxes, et cetera, et cetera, so that the state got the bulk of it and not the county, and so that's put the county in a bad place. I tend to be pretty jaded and skeptical uh, about most government, but especially King County. I have, I, I, in, in the interest of honesty, I, I really don't like King County very much, and I always say that when I'm interviewing somebody from the county. You know, they always smile and look at me and go, uh-huh. <laughs> but it's true. And so I am skeptical, and I'm delighted to have you here because, of course, one of your areas of specialization is transportation. What's the deal with the roads? Why are we being told that there's no money for road repair? Well, that's a great question, Heather. Thank you. And it is what I what I am definitely focusing focusing a lot of my energy and and uh, work on. So uh, again, I come from transportation background. Uh, I worked for the U.S. Department of Transportation for about eight years. Um, and when I first came to the valley, I came to Snoqualmie Valley, North Bend, in the late '80s. Um, so I've been here quite a while. And uh, the interesting thing there, then I worked for the U.S. Forest Service, and that was a federal agency. And and it would be interesting that the federal agency at that time had less money for roads than King County. So a lot of roads in, in the valley, you know, uh, are county roads, and they end up going into national forest land. And so the road then becomes national forest road. And when we try to work on our roads, we often will get the county to help us a lot to uh, get those roads in better shape, to get access to the national forest. Um, and uh, it's interesting. I thought that the county seemed to have more money than the, than the federal government for roads. Well, that was in the 80s. And what has happened over time is a combination of things that uh, no one really anticipated. And it's happening across Washington, but it's really uh, the, the, uh, the point where it's coming to convergence first is King County. And then the other two populous counties of Paris and Snohomish, it'll be it's heading that way as well. And what's happened is the um, in King County, 11% of the population now lives in rural unincorporated King County. Uh, and the rest are all in city limits of some sort, whether it's Carnation or North Bend or Snoqualmie or whatever. Um, and road money is collected by population. And because uh, with growth management plans where the cities have annexed more and more area, and it's a good plan for growth that we keep the denser populations in cities, that's a good thing. But what it's done is, is took, taken all the high value property and the dense populations and put it in city boundaries. 
which means all those roads now are funded to the cities. So the county now has almost as many miles of road as they had in the 80s, but they have 11% of the population paying taxes to support them. And if you look around King County, uh, you know, like in the Valley, particularly, of course, we have Highway 202 and 203, our main state highways through the Valley. And then we have a ton of county roads mixed in with the with the city roads of Duval, Carnation, and, you know, Snoqualmie, North Bend, et cetera. So what we have is three funding sources. We have the, the, the city funding their roads. We have the county funding their roads and the state funding their roads. And unfortunately, these three systems were not designed to ultimately work really well together. Uh, they're all independent. And so if you think about the population of King County and the miles of road that are county roads, and if you think 11% of the population could pay enough taxes to take care of those roads, just isn't so. Um, you know, we, you know, I think they said, uh, someone came with a number of every one of those people had to pay enough taxes to take care of the roads. Each individual in the rural King, uh, King County have to pay like, you know, ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a year um, <laughs> per person to try to put a dent in that. And that's just because of the numbers. It's a population shift in boundaries. And so that is really what's happened. Um, that explains that in a nutshell. So. Rural King County pot has just continued to diminish as the cities have incorporated more of. So that's that's where we are, and unfortunate uh, that we are there. Um, is that clear? Before going with some other stuff, because that's a lot of in-depth stuff where I just explained that. Well, it is clear to a certain extent. What about the division mm-hmm. of tax money for road repair? Because what I've been hearing from some of the county people is that um, the state changed the formula for the distribution of certain taxes, and because of that, we have uh, suffered, the county has suffered having less revenue uh, than they did in the past. Yeah, not not really so much. We haven't changed formulas. It's really a matter of prop- the two pieces that matter are property values and population. Uh, those are make that because the, the money that goes to, to the roads, if you're in a city, if you're in the, within the city limits of Carnation, there's a certain amount of your property tax that will go to city roads. Um, if you're just outside the city limit, that certain amount of your property taxes goes to county roads. And the two don't meet. Um, and it's just there are not enough people outside the city limits to now help pay for all those roads. I mean, just think about Carnation and the distance between Carnation and Duval and North Bend and Snoqualmie and Redmond and all that, you have a lot of roads out there, just a lot of miles of road. The county has a lot of miles of road. They cover a lot of areas um, with not very dense populations, and there's just not enough. The formulas haven't changed so much. The density of the population and the value of those properties, obviously the the values go higher in the cities um, than they do out in the rural areas. Um, and so that combination has really made that that change. That make that make clearer sense? Yes, obviously. Um, two questions that I have about that is if you read the materials coming out from King County, if you mm-hmm. take the time to read all the way through down to the small print, several times I have read that the obvious solution to this is to remove the 1% cap on property tax, which concerns me. Um, because I remember mm-hmm. before we had that, how much property taxes went up a lot every year. Um, so that is a, a little red flag for me when I'm reading these materials. Um, so that's what I'm seeing kind of hinted at as a solution to this problem of not enough money for uh, rural road repair. The other thing that I think of is that 
uh, we are hearing tax uh, conversations all the time about taxing usage tax on roads. Uh, we've heard this certainly with the city of Seattle wanting to uh, banding around the idea of charging for people to drive on uh, city streets. We have a lot of urban people who come out and use these county roads every weekend. Um, can the rural areas do something like that to help re- to help build the coffers for road repair and bridge repair? Yes, and and that is one of the things I actually I introduced legislation this last year to start dealing with that. So the question that we're talking about in King County, believe it or not, it's transportation funding in every county and every city in the state that I've visited. They have the same complaint. They don't have enough money for transportation. So this is a statewide problem, countywide, every county, every city. No one has enough money for transportation. So that's a given. So with that information, I've worked with a bunch of folks, came up with uh, some proposed legislation in my session in how to allow the cities and counties to co- you know, pay for money for their roads. Um, and what it, it was, it's a complicated bill. It, hurt, it had a couple hearings. It didn't get to, to a legislation, uh, and hopefully this next year it will in some sort of package we can get into a little later. Um, but I want to get – so I'm telling you I'm working on, on something. But I want to get back to your two questions you had, and then we'll come back to it. The 1% cap is uh, definitely – and that is for both cities and counties. So whether it's the city mm-hmm. of Carnation or Duval, whatever, they have that 1% where they can increase that. Now, it is a little bit of a – it's not like a one percent on all your value of tax. One percent is 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 of their that portion, so it's not as big as people think. But that is one way to increase taxes. Yes, and I'm not saying that's the way to do that. I have not proposed anything that has to do with that. But both cities and counties and some of those have have uh, talked about that. And that option is always an, uh, a debate, usually on city councils and county councils, on whether to do it or not. Um, there's some cities, for example, uh, city of Snoqualmie last year, they had a large debate on whether to take that full 1% cap because you don't have to take it. You can use it. You can bank it or whatever. Um, and they only took, I, I forget, it was a half of a percent versus the full percent. Um, and uh, it, that doesn't, for the city of Snoqualmie, I think it was $20,000 total or income for them. It wasn't a lot of money. Um, so that, that is that piece of whether people want to use that. Um, and then you mentioned uh, the road use charge, um, and that's again a, a, a committee I'm on. Um, there's what is being proposed, and we're going to get in some depth here. So, and I can't see you on the other side. So, if you want to cut me off in clarification or whatever at any time, let me know. Um, <laughs> yeah, because road use charge um, to, to drop into that is one thing we know. Here's here's my my spiel: the gasoline tax has been by far, I believe, the fairest, best tax we've had for 100 years. It isn't based on your usage. You buy more gallons of gas, you pay more tax. So it's basically more of a use charge than a tax. And so it seems fair. If I drive a little bit, I pay a little bit. If you drive more, you pay more. So it's been a balance. So that part has worked for almost 100 years. And the other thing that's good about it is it's really easy and cheap collect that tax um, because it's basically paid at the, at the refinery every gallon that goes out. So it's not collected at every little pump and where it goes, it looks like it is, but it's really paid at the refinery. So it's a very simple, easy tax to collect as well. Very inexpensive. So that has been around. The problem we've seen over the last 20 plus years, and this has been going on for close to 30 years now, 
that gas tax has not kept up with the cost of what we need to spend on our roads. Uh, it has not increased our inflation. It's hardly in increased at all from the federal level. It's not increased. It's a very difficult tax to increase. Um, so it hasn't kept up with the cost of what we need to spend. So across the spectrum, though, it is not working. And also because cars get a whole lot more mileage per gallon than they used to, more other things are happening. So we're trying to clean our energy transportation sector up. So people are buying less gas, maybe overall. So it's not keeping up. So that's just a fact. And we have to do something to get a new model of how to pay for the roads that we use. Um, and that's, that's a fair thing. You drive on the roads, you pay for their, their use and their construction and maintenance. Uh, I think that's a fair tax that no one can argue with too much. Um, so across this nation, every state, is looking at how to come up with a different uh, uh, gas tax, alternative gas tax, I should say. Um, and so that's called road uses charge, some method of charging for the use of the road. It is intended not to charge you for the roads, but to find a way to replace the gas tax um, in an equivalent manner. So that's the thing that people miss. It's not adding a new tax to use the roads. It's saying, well, if you don't pay gas tax, you can pay you know, X, X cents per mile you drive um, in the same way you would pay X cents per gallon of gas you buy. Um, so we're trying to get a method that, again, fair, uh, that is fair for everybody um, for the amount of usage you have. And, and most of the models I've seen on this, um, actually many people, the rural areas really are afraid of this. They say they drive more miles. That's true. Yes. But, yes, but yes, you, yes. they use, yeah, but they use more gas. So most folks in rural areas are already paying a higher tax than the city areas because they're buying more gallons of gas, they're paying more gas tax than folks in the city um, if, they're, if they're driving more. If I, can, if I can jump in here, but isn't that a little bit disingenuous because you're saying it can be an either or, but we, I mean, when has, I have never, I'm, an, I'm older than dirt and I can never remember a tax going away. Um, so what we're looking at, I think, or what a lot of people are thinking is, okay, right now in Washington, we're paying 49.4 cents per gallon in state gas taxes. And that's, no, that's, that's all gases. That's all taxes together. That, that's not just state. That is all gas well, tax together. To, um, who's authored this report? Um, it's the state and I'm looking at the, uh, source of this and I believe it was a Como, um, let me scroll down here. Uh, Wall Street, 24-7 uh, Wall Street is the source of this. And they are saying that the, um, maybe inaccurately, but that we pay 49.4 cents per gallon in state gas taxes. You're saying, though, that's federal taxes as well? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. So I apologize for this analysis by 24-7 Wall Street. Um, but in any event, uh, we have the high, fourth highest in the, in the country in gas tax. And so... Right. Drivers are already saying, okay, we pay a lot of uh, tax for gas here. Now yes. we're getting this idea of, okay, now we can have this usage tax, but it's not really going to be an either or. It, at least the perception is, is that, okay, that's going to be one more thing added on. What, you're, what I'm hearing you say is, no, maybe it could be an either or, but how would that work? Because I, honestly, I've never seen a tax go away. I've seen some reduced momentarily. <laughs> But it didn't take them to go right back up. Um, so maybe it's not the, the, the flack that you're hearing, maybe from rural people. Right. And that is, and, and I know, like I say, I, I, you know, um, I lived in some pretty rural places in my time before I came to King County. Actually, moving to North Bend was moving to the big city for me. 
uh, from where I used to live. Um, for 12 years, as close as I lived, a traffic light was at least 80 miles away. So I know some pretty rural places. I was 100 miles from the nearest doctor. I know what it's like driving all those miles. Um, and I, I hear that. And I think these issues are, um, they tend to get sound bites sometimes and, they, and, and sometimes they're not quite as clear. All the work that's been done on a road usage charge is to replace gas tax. Um, now the problem being is how do you do that? How do you go to a gas, you know, to change that? And the problem is how do you implement that? So say you drive 10,000 miles a year, the average is that people drive, and, and it comes up with, you know, you know, four cents a, a mile or whatever it is. Um, that would be what you'd pay for the year for the ten. How, but how do you figure out if you drive 10,000 miles or 15,000 miles, how do you collect the tax? That is the difficulty of why it hasn't gone. And believe me, everybody across the nation is trying to figure this out. So I'll use myself as an example. I now have an electric vehicle, okay? I now pay more in gas tax on my electric vehicle than you pay on, in, in gas tax because they went and passed. They said electric vehicles have to pay something. We shouldn't get the roads for free. I agree with that. So, and, and I had my gas one and I ran what I paid for gas taxes with that vehicle. And then I got my new one that didn't pay any gas tax. And, um, but I pay a flat rate on my tabs every year for electric vehicle charge. And that charge was $175 that I pay for electric vehicle. When I calculated the gas taxes I paid on my vehicle before it was electric, I paid $135 a year in gas tax. So I'm actually paying $40 more a year to drive an electric vehicle in gas tax than I would have if I kept my gas car. Because they took an example, they didn't want to have electric vehicles do nothing, they took an average, that's what it came out to me. So see how that would be replaced. I'm not paying gas tax, I'm now paying a flat fee. Um, now the difference is it's not accurate because I may drive more or less miles, it's still a flat fee which means some people, if they drive a lot, they're getting a cheaper rate than people that drive a little bit. So that's the problem in trying to figure out what that charge would be. Um, and most folks, when you, when you look at it, if you have a car, a truck that gets less miles than a car, most folks, their price per mile that they pay in tax or road use charge would actually go down because they use a lot more gas. So they pay a lot more gas tax, where the car that uses less gas would pay less tax. So, um, so actually, when the bigger vehicles actually, the, the shift would be that the littler vehicles would pay more of their share for the miles they drive, and the bigger vehicles would not. When we, all the models I've seen work through this, and it gets very complicated on how to collect it. But the the goal is to replace gas tax with something that's fair throughout, um, and not an additional charge. That's the one message I want to give to you. I know it sounds weird. People say they don't they don't ever take a tax away, and I hear you. Um, and this wouldn't be, <laughs> I hear you on that. I hear you. And, and I, and I, and I believe you cause I believe the same thing. So the one thing I've done on there is it's always a, a either or, um, and the problem is how do you shift that when some people like myself, I have electric, one electric vehicle, one gas vehicle, right? So, you know, how do I pay on each of them and, and, and make that shift? So that's why none of that has been implemented yet because we haven't found an easy way for folks to pay their, their share, you know, how do you know how many miles you're going to drive till after you've driven them, right? Yeah, um, yeah so that's a whole lot. You can ask some questions now because I've gone on for a long time on that. It's probably not <laughs> well, we clear. Did, um, 
And, and I apologize for that because I have a whole list of other questions for you. But I did want to cover that because I think so many of us who are not involved in uh, government and decision making, you know, mm-hmm. it's almost like you guys go to school to try and make everything really complicated. <laughs> I, I hear you. And, and I hear you. And, and you know, well, let me just say, when my first, first quarter of college, I took, you know, poli-sci 101. And the first thing the professor said is, guess what? They solved all the easy problems in the first 10 years of this country. Anything we have left is tough because they didn't solve the tough ones. They solved all the easy ones. And so as you go on 200 years later, guess what? If it's easy, we took care of it a long time ago. So none of these are simple and and they get complex and they get more details and they don't work well with sound bites. You know, there just has to be more information to truly understand the full picture. And this one, and some get more complicated than others when you're trying to work with that. That is very true, and I regret that, but, but it's a fact when you try to make things balanced and equitable, um, those things do, do come about. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll keep track of this. I mean, um, I, I'm okay. kind of. I feel like they should have, you know, those thermometers that, that go up for charitable giving in front of, you know, they should have one of them uh-huh. going down for how, you know, when the county is going to run out of, of road repair. Um, and uh, I'm not so worried about the potholes as I am the bridges, you know. <laughs> yeah. We're in big trouble. <laughs> right. So, Especially in the valley where you got a lot of bridges. I mean, you got the river and you got to get across it and hold a lot of places. Let me tell you one more thing, because so you know, because I mentioned about the legislation I sponsored. So my push was cities and counties, I want them to have their own. Uh, ability to solve their own problems. I'm a local guy. I like the cities to be able to have the authority to do what they need to do and counties unless the state should do as little as, as need be unless when we need something statewide. So the push on here was to give authorities for cities and counties to implement various funding mechanisms of their choice. It was a kind of an array of things for them to decide how much they wanted to collect to work on their roads in their jurisdiction. Um, and, and there was a, a uh, an array, a buffet, if you will, of, of things to do that with. And uh, most folks were pretty supportive. It's been talked about a lot now because that's a need. I mean, just it is a need. We need to do that and how we're going to do it. And I want the local folks that have the authority and to work with their community and say, how much do we want on this road? Do we want this big bridge? Do we want this, that, whatever? This is going to cost X dollars. Are we willing to pay for it? Um, and because otherwise these small cities you have to wait on the, uh, you know, through some grant process from the state for some state to come in to give you a little bit of money to help your project. And you may wait years for it and, and you can't get there without that. And that's not a good system either. Um, and, and it's really hard on the smaller communities for sure uh, in the rural communities. And so that's why I wanted to have their own authority to do that. That would allow King, King County to do stuff with a lot of the cities and, and, you know, and Snohomish may, may, to do something and Duval says no we'd never do that and that's okay because it would fit their town it would fit their community right and that's the decision I would like the local folks to have the ability to make but right now there's no authority for them to do that and that's the problem I want them to have those those options well yes and it makes the local um, um, jurisdiction beggars it makes them beg you know I mean I work with a lot of nonprofits and I'm always saying you know if the Girl Scouts can have half of their national and local operating budgets for the last hundred and some years based on cookie sales, 
then we need to be able to have the big sale or whatever. And I, I'm always joking about, you know, we need to see, uh, we need to see you guys out there in front of the legislature having that big sale. You know, yes, we need, we need to actually bring in money from other sources besides just taking it away from other people. Um, and so that's mm-hmm. kind of my thing. So you're, you're talking my language now. Um, yeah. So um, I wanted to move away from that. We, I'm sure we could talk a whole hour on the roads thing. For Thank sure, you. on transportation for forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially as cantankerous as I am. But I wanted to get on to another difficult one, and then I have some easier ones for you. And that is, especially in the rural areas, not a week goes by that I don't hear of another senior citizen um, that's been priced out of their homes. And they, I think all of the studies that I'm familiar with, and um, many of them I'm sure you're familiar with, shows that uh, it is more economical and more um, uh, enjoyable for seniors to age in place, if you will, to age in their own homes. And yet, in our county especially, um, seniors are being priced out of their homes. They're, they're losing their homes, even when they've paid for them and thought, okay, we're good here, we've got a paid-for house, but the expenses keep going up and the taxes keep going up, and seniors are losing their homes. California has a system whereby seniors don't lose their home because of that. Now, you could argue that it got the, the state government, uh, you know, lost money and got into some trouble because of that particular property tax structure. But from the standpoint of keeping seniors in their homes, it, it made great sense. What about senior citizens losing their homes, being taxed out of their homes um, because of the economy that we're in today. Yes, um, and thank you for bringing that up. It is a critical piece, and and I totally agree with you that uh, we want to keep folks in their home as long as possible or don't have them decide they have to move somewhere else out of King County to to be able to afford it. So my very first bill that I passed in the legislature was a property tax relief for seniors. And that uh, went into effect, I passed it last year, went into effect this year in 20. Um, And the the problem before was that uh, there was a set value that across the state where um, seniors, uh, uh, low-income seniors, could uh, get exemption or reductions of property tax. And the problem was it was a flat rate amount, which means, you know, remain the same in Euphrata as it did in King County, which had no relevance whatsoever because it just, you can't compare the price of property in those two places, right? So the law we passed um, is that it would then, instead of being a flat rate across the state, it was matched by county by the average uh, price of property in county where you live. And so that took it in King County, you had to earn something like less than $30,000 a year to, to get the exemption, which you can't live on 30,000 in King County very easily, um, right? So now I think it's, I, I can't quote the numbers exactly off the top of my head. I believe it's around 54,000 uh, now that you can earn and get this property tax exemption uh, as a senior. And don't quote me on that exact price, it's somewhere in there. But it basically went up about you know, $15,000, $20,000 property values are different. Um, so that went into effect this year. So any senior you know that has that problem, our county assessor, John Wilson, is excellent at this. He will get anybody in that program that he can fit in in any way he can. So contact your county assessor, John Wilson, and and see if there's not that. There may be some other things he can do. He really works well with people on that. And so reach out, 
try it. I mean, because if you may not, you may reduce it or, or keep it at, at a so, uh, same level versus increasing. There's some various programs in there to try to keep seniors, uh, low-income seniors in their home. And that, I say that was the first bill I passed. Yeah, that is helpful. However, it's not a panacea because, as, as you know, the bill that we get for our properties every year is more than just the property tax itself. We have uh, levies and uh, bond issues, and all, and those are not affected um, by that uh, senior citizen reduction, low-income reduction. Um, so it helps somewhat, but it's not like, woohoo, you know, the, this, this solves the problem. It's helpful, but right. it doesn't necessarily solve it completely um, because of that. Right. And I, I, I'm just throwing that out for listeners so that... Yep. You know, because uh, I know a few people who thought, oh, this is going to really, really help, and then they found out it didn't help as much as they had hoped. So um, it, it's a it's a it's a way to help, but it's not necessarily a solution. Um, let's move on to something more right. more. Uh, well, I was going to say something more interesting. Sex. Oh. Um, one of the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got you there, didn't I? Um, All right. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big brouhaha's this uh, in this last legislative session, uh, session before uh, the zombie apocalypse hit was the sex ed bill. Whoa, was that mm-hmm. controversial? Um, what's the status with that? Uh, what, what's going on with that? Uh, has it just kind of taken a back seat because of uh, the COVID thing, or is it still a hot button issue? Uh, is it scheduled to go through, or was it among the, the bills that the governor? Uh, kind of quashed before because of the budget issues before um, they got a chance to get going. What's the status of that? Good. Well, thank you, Heather, for that. Um, and, and I want to correct the people called the sex ed bill. That is not the proper name of it. It is the comprehensive sexual health education bill um, because sex ed means something else than, than uh, uh, health education. Um, so that is, I want to com- uh, talk about that for sure. The status um, is that it did pass, and it was uh, we did uh, hear a lot from constituents about it, um, and so it passed, and we'll go into fact. I think the most interesting thing, and we'll get into the detail because there's a lot of misinformation on this bill. The uh, most of the schools in our area, in our district, um, already do probably 90 plus percent of what's in that bill. The, the schools are already doing so. It's really in our area. It's not m- much news at all. I'm not sure River, you know, where the, where the line are, but I don't know all the curricula or all the school districts. But most of the stuff in our area is already done. Um, the, the, there's a, been a lot of misinformation about what it does, and I can tell you that, that a lot of it is plain misinformation. Um, uh, what it does, it, and, and a few things it does is very important. Parents have the opt-out right of this at any time. So this is an optional education. It's not a required education at all. Parents can take their kids out of this at any time. So first of all, with that, you have to know what it's about. So the requirement first is that the school districts have to tell the parents what they're teaching. Those parents that don't know what their kids are being taught right now, they have to be told, right? So they have to know what the curriculum is, okay? And then they can opt out or opt in, okay? That's all up to them. And it will be designed by the local school district. The curriculum is locally designed. It is not a state-mandated um, uh, curriculum. So that's another misinformation. So the misinformation is first, you're going to opt out. Second is it, um, it, you have to share what that curriculum is. Third is that it is all created locally. And there's no curriculum mandate from, from uh, the state. Um, 
And so those are big things that people don't understand about this because those are the complaints I hear people saying is, we, you know, the state's telling us we have to teach our kids about, you know, about sex. It doesn't. It talks about comprehensive sexual health education. So we have as it goes through the school, it's uh, different ages or different appropriate things as everybody knows. This is common sense. Those things people are talking about are not common sense things I would vote for. We know that you can talk to a sixth grader differently than a tenth grader. And those are the things that change through the curriculum from, from age groups. Um, and they can opt out at any time, but you have to know what it is. And that hasn't always been shared. So I think some of the parents don't know that most of this, their kids are already getting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think and, right, but it, I is, it did pass. It did pass. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. when will it go into effect? Um, I, I believe this coming up school year. If I, I say because we pass it, then there's some time. It may be actually it's either this coming school year or the next one. I'm not I'm not sure on that date in the back of my head now. Um, but this one or the next one. But like I say, in our area, you know, 90% of it's already in place. Yeah, has been well, for years. Yeah, I think that, you know, your the, the local control is a real important factor. Um, I know, mm-hmm. of course, you know, as I said I'm, earlier, I am older than dirt, so my children are grown. But the thing that I saw with my daughter, who was in a um, third, fourth, fifth grade split when she was in elementary school, and so when the sex ed com- uh, curriculum uh, came up, they uh, informed the parents that we could, you know, call our child out. Well, Sometimes that's easier said than done uh, because there's a stigma attached with the child. You don't want your child to be targeted. So, you know, you have to look at both sides of the benefits of pulling them out of something that you think they might not be ready for. And, you know, so basically I discussed it with my daughter and and, um, gave her a choice. Do you want to try it or do you want to go to the library or what, what would you like to do? And I was always very open with my children about talking about these things. They knew they could talk with me about anything. Um, and she decided she wanted to try it. And then that night she came home <laughs> and she had a vocabulary list. And I thought, whoa, I'm pretty well educated here. I don't even know what Cowper's gland is. What the heck? <laughs> you know, what is this? And, and uh, she looked at me and she goes, Mommy, can I go to the library tomorrow? And I went, yeah, sure you can, honey. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think a lot of this has to do with, uh, you know, having common sense, recognizing that, you know, there's more than one there's more than one thing that children get out of everything, and um, right. to just also inform yourself. I mean, really, I mean, yeah. I, it it just uh, makes common sense to me. But I do respect the uh, decision of parents who choose to uh, remove their kids and educate them at home. You know, with their own uh, yep. background of, you know, I I think it's that's an important thing that that we need to make sure always exists. Okay, see, I told you that was yeah. easy, even though we were talking about that. Yeah, about that. And, and, and just, there you go. And just so know that I came from city council, uh, you know, governance, so I'm I'm a guy that's always looking for the, lo- the most local control possible. Um, this is one of them, and I really like that, that it does bring it back to the local level, the school district, to decide what it is. You know, the Riverview School District may need something different than the Snoqualmie School District, and, and those, uh, you know, are totally up to them, and then they have to tell the parents. I mean, this is a requirement so that, that folks will know um, what what there is. And uh, that information to me is always good. And, and having folks make the decision what's right for them, their family, their local community is always, I will push those decisions down as far as I can get uh, them to where it makes sense. Okay. All righty. Now, another easy, easy topic that we can move to, budget shortfalls. 
Where'd you hear that rumor? There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Where'd you hear that rumor? <laughs> oh, I've been reading up about it. I just heard. Um, yeah. There's some question that I have, and I, I think that um, that merits discussion, is sometimes when we say shortfalls, what we're talking about is, well, our budget was $1,000 for last year. This year we made it mm-hmm. $1,100. But we're only going to get in 1080 so, whoa, we have a $20 shortfall. Um, there's a difference between actually not having money for the current stuff that's going on and not having enough for what we want to have. Uh, you know, I mean, I want a new washer and dryer next year. But mm-hmm. if I don't have enough money to buy it, I'm not saying that's a shortfall. I'm just saying, okay, I can't get the washer and dryer this year. And yet, with our governmental entities, we always call it a government shortfall. Um, what, how, how badly in trouble are we with the state budget right now? Um, it, it's serious. I won't, I won't deny that. It, it is serious. Um, and, and where that budget comes a little bit about that is how we build our budgets in the state is we, we predict what the revenue will be. And then we build a budget to that. And just like you said, if we predict it to be $100, we do that. If we, if it, it, what happens in the second year of the buy-in, because we do two-year budgets, we, we predict it out for the second year. But after the first year, we get more accurate information for the second year. And if the, if the budget you know, is going, you know, the revenue is going down or up, we adjust. Okay. Um, but it's not using major adjustments. It's just minor adjustments. Well, this year, it's going to be probably more major adjustment. Um, and we're we're starting the second year of the budget come July first. Um, and so um, yeah. And what's happened here is is we had a beautiful budget. It was perfectly balanced uh, in January, um, and uh, that was no problem. And then uh, you know something changed in March, um, and so uh, the revenue forecast uh, totally changed from what it was. Um, and that's what's happened is the, the revenue that was thought was coming in for as many things that we, we want to have is not going to be there. Um, and that's across many areas. Uh, so it's the, such as transportation. Gas taxes are way down because people aren't driving. So there's less revenue there for roads, right? There's less revenue for other parts of things. Sales taxes down. Uh, people aren't spending as much money, right? Uh, and so forth. So, so it's across the board. Now, here there is kind of bad news, good news, I guess. I, always, I tend to be more of an optimist. Um, but it is there. It is very real, and we do need to make some adjustments. Um, how much that is is still up in the air because uh, the biggest question for me is if the federal government is going to help out the states and the counties and the cities. That has been the big push. You know, they, they passed a number of things to help you know people and businesses previously, and now what they realize is all those revenues for all cities and counties and states are down as well. Um, and, uh, so we have to look at that. Now there's some bills in the federal government to, on the house side to, uh, help that out. Um, we don't know if they'll get passed or not because they don't, things in the house don't always get past the Senate. Um, so they're there. If they come through, um, we will be able to deal with this fairly, uh, reasonably, I believe. If they don't, it definitely makes it much, much worse situation. And when they'll come through, we don't know. Of course, you can't predict anything yeah. in Washington, D.C., right? So there's a little bit of optimism. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, Are you there? You say something? I just, yeah, you, I'm here. You just, you just dropped out. Um, the, oh. So you said there's, you were talking about there's some, uh, a little bit of optimism available, uh, depending on the, right. whether or not 
the federal government comes through. Um, what Correct. about um, our state treasurer, Dwayne Davidson, has called for a special legislative session to help make some of the decisions that need to be made in order to bring our budget into um, you know, to to make the the chain any changes necessary. I was uh, fortunate to interview last week uh, Representative Roger Goodman from the 45th district. He said right. that there will be a special session in August. Why so long? I mean, why aren't you guys down there now? Well, it, it, and, and again, a complicated uh, question. Um, first of all, we can't. We have legally when we can be in session, and that's passed. We ended that in March. So we just can't go down there and, and do something without legal authority to do that. The governor has to call us back in, and and he has to have things that we're going to do um, in a special session. Um, and just to be very honest, normally we in the state legislature, unlike the national legislature, we try really hard to keep our legislating to pure legislating and elections and campaigning to separate. You know, Congress is doing that every day of the year, all year round. Um, so normally we'd be done with session. We're not doing a legislation in this. And this is obviously a campaign year. And, and mixing the two for us is not a normal thing. We don't like to do that um, because it's just two things we've always historically kept separate. Um, so because all that's happening, it also does get uh, tricky because what what I can and can't do is very legal right now. On, on many things because officially I'm in campaign mode, even though I'm doing work now that I wouldn't normally be doing because of, of the, the pandemic. Um, so we're trying to keep those things separate and not politicize the legislative process. And, and getting folks in agreement on when that would be is what's difficult because uh, you know there's only 147 people down there you have to get agreement with, actually 148 because the governor. Um, so that's the hard part of having to do that. Now, there may be, uh, as soon as one will be in August, I don't know for sure if one will be in August or not. I don't know when one will be. There's been no decision to my knowledge yet. Um, and some people would like to, the reason I, August was pushed would be after the primary, uh, but it's far away from the general election. Uh, it'd be, I think, to try to keep that to the less political thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. There's some people that have that and it has to have agreement. Uh, we can't do that. We don't have, like I say, we don't have authority to do that without agreement amongst the, all, those, all those branches of government. So it's, it, is, um, it is difficult. Some of us would love to go down there and do something, um, and some would rather wait than trying to find that balance. And, again, if the, other, the big question for me is, again, if we went and said and made a bunch of changes now and, and – took all this stuff away, and then the federal government next month came and helped us out where we wouldn't have had to do that, that wouldn't have been a smart move either. So we're, we're trying to balance that with, you know, the House in, in D.C. has got the bill for us. The question, will the Senate take it up or not? So we got half of it done, if we can get the other half done. And I'd rather make that decision with, you know, the federal government helping us out, and then our decisions are much smaller and much more simpler than the bigger one. So there's that balancing act we're, we're in the middle of here, and you have 148 different opinions on um, where that uh, where that should be. And like I said, we don't have the legal ability until those those powers come together to make that decision. So I can go to Olympia all I want, but I can just sit in my office. I can't do anything legally. You know, I mean that's 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 the way our our legislature is set up. Well, I think that speaking just as an ordinary you know constituent, um, I you know some of us think maybe our legislators should take a leadership role and, you know, be there, 
and, and be there. I mean, there's that, there's that as well as just, uh, you know, all of the complicating factors I understand that you're saying, but just from a, um, a simple, you know, uh, showing of the constituents, it would seem to me that many people might think, get down there and start doing something, you know, <laughs> you know, we're, we're in crisis here, you know, some of us, you know, have no jobs anymore. And so why, what's taking you so long? So, you know, I'm just throwing that out there and, and, you know, for the winds to carry to whomever, I guess. The other thing is. Well, that, well, uh, well, let me, let me, let me answer that one. Cause, um, because you're absolutely right. Uh, the appearance is, is really bad and it looks like nobody's doing anything. Um, and you're right. Um, in that appearance part. Uh, but because we're not sitting there in the House or Senate desk, a lot of people are working really hard on this. People just don't see it. That's why all these discussions are being made. What are we going to do? What are our possibilities? What options do we have? Could we get folks together for a special session? If we can get something passed, it's going to make a, a difference. And right now, there's not the agreement to do that. But but believe me, I'm working very hard as a legislator right now, and so is everybody else, and so is all our staff trying to get something going. But people don't see it because we're not sitting in our desk in the House or in the Senate. Um, but the, that work is going on, and I know people don't see it, and I'm sorry about that. You can't see that happen. But now we, you know, until just now, Thurston County is maybe getting to the point where we could. But before, we couldn't get together. So what we're doing, we're Zooming, and we're, we're phoning, and we're doing all those things, and we're doing the work. Uh, but you're absolutely right. We don't, you, nobody sees it and don't realize that. Yeah. And and you you remind me with that story. You remind me of one of the, the first job I had out uh, after uh, undergraduate college, college graduation uh, was working for a Girl Scout Council in Akron, Ohio. And the building was a Victorian home that had uh, actually had been built by the gentleman who started uh, Quaker Oats Company. And so it used to be a grand, grand place. But, you know, after 100 years or so, they start to fall down. And so we were in this old house, and with the house came Henry. Henry was ancient, and he cleaned. Well, he tried to clean, and he just came with the house. I mean, there was there, and, and this happened back back east, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, this this was you know this company had it, and we're going to sell it to you, and with it comes Henry. You know, you got to put him on the payroll, and you know Henry Henry stays here. You know, this is this is Henry's house. And so Henry always, when, when I'd go into my office, and, of course, working for the Girl Scouts, she did a lot of things out in the field. And whenever I'd be gone for a day, I'd come back day, and Henry cut, would, would push his broom down the hallway. And when he'd come to my door, he'd look in, and he'd say, you were off yesterday. And I'd say, no, Henry, I was out working. I was out working. And he'd look at me and go, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> if he didn't see you, <laughs> if he didn't see you, right. Um, so maybe you could share yeah. the story with the, the other legislators. If we don't see it, you're not working, okay? Um, yeah, and 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 I realize it definitely looks that way, but uh, like I said, it uh, it definitely is not the case. Um, uh, we're working every day on on all these issues, trying to to get some agreement on them for sure. Absolutely, um, absolutely. But you know, we we want to know it too. We want we want to know. Um, I, I know. That that brings us. To another issue, and I'm looking at the clock going, no, no, I still have eight things on my list, so you're just going to have to come back. I'm sorry. <laughs> <But> <laughs> thing I'd love to. Is, is the unemployment debacle. Oh, my gosh. And I must say, I'm one of those people who, who applied for unemployment on March 14th uh, with the COVID thing. I have, I have not yet been approved for unemployment. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> going, Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And I was very patient for the first three months. And now I'm going, no, no, I'm not patient anymore. I, you know, 
Um, and the very first thing they did was to remove all communication. They shut down the phone lines. They didn't respond. They have a, when you file your weekly claim, there's a, a you can send them a message. I have sent a message every single week because they have listed my previous employers incorrectly. And mm-hmm. so I've sent an, a message every single week saying this is reflecting too many employers, too many hours, too many, you know, this is not accurate. I'm worried that you're going to think I'm trying to defraud you or something. Never right. once have gotten a response. And I'm thinking, you know what, now I'm testy about this. <laughs> yep, I get you. Since March 14th, get somebody to communicate with people. That's just as important as you know filling out the paperwork, and it's certainly just as important as paying the Nigerian princess. Okay, and all right. There's my rant. <laughs> now, now I'll shut up and let you let you be reasonable. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, <laughs> I love it, Heather. We're a good team. We'll bounce back and forth on on unreasonableness and reasonableness. All right. Um, but uh, no, that's it's good. Uh, I I totally agree with you. Um, and and I expected it to be fixed by now as well. Um, I will say, having been a uh, you know a government employee myself at one point in time, uh, to put things in perspective, in a month and a half, that department tried to do what the amount of work they normally do in a year and a half. So they 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 were no way capable of ready to react to what happened. Okay, that's just that's just it. I mean, we don't build a department that's gonna you know be there for for the extreme. Um, so so that is that's a basis in in the background that they were just they were swamped, um, overwhelmed, and, and anything else you can say to describe what what they had. Um, given that they they have you know then yeoman's work trying to get things back going and they've done a decent job in some areas and a lot of folks have gotten caught up and they've gotten. Uh, worked pretty well. I got my son-in-law who his his process like like nothing, and it went through. And then I've got other people that I know that like yourself that, and that's not acceptable because that I mean a month maybe three months is is getting pretty bad. So um, I'm pushing them. Uh, the government's pushing them to see what we can do to get these uh, folks that that have gotten stuck for some reason or another, whether they got stuck in the the attempt you know the attempted fraud. Or actually, successful in some ways. Uh, the fraud that, that had, yeah, that that they tried to, uh, you know, tighten things down, um, which made it worse, um, and uh, and and a whole bunch of things. And it, it's, I don't have a good answer for you, but what I can tell you is, if anyone who's hearing this that is in the fifth district, and I know this is going to be way beyond that, but if you're in the fifth district and you are stuck like you are, Heather, please call my office. My assistant will will um, get some information on your case, and we will push on it directly ourselves as well. Um, I'm not saying we can fix it, but uh, we can put our weight behind that uh, claim as well to try to get that fixed. So if you're in the 5th District, call my office, and we'll work on that. If you're in another district, call that representative from that district um, and uh, – and, and talk to them and, and we will try to push that as fast as we can. Um, because, uh, yeah, there's some problems. I say a, a month would be reasonable for, for some of this, but, uh, they're, they're trying to do everything they can. Um, but yeah, it's gotten to the point of, and mm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm getting testy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My patience ran out. It's like, no, now I, I know. No. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I so- feel like, I mean, the first thing you cut off is communication. No, yeah. you know, that should be yeah. the last thing you cut off, you know. 
I know. Um, but literally, the problem what I what I what I heard was they were getting the equivalent of about um, a thousand calls per second um, from across the state, and just to try to staff a thousand calls per second is 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 horrendous. You know, uh, workload uh, where they, they this is their decision. I'm not saying I agree with it. This was not my authority. They decided to focus everybody on working on claims to get them out versus answering the phone for a week. Um, and it looked like they got a lot of things done that week versus dealing with a thousand calls a second. Um, oh, but that's not, but that's not, that, that doesn't feel good at all to, to, to me or Joe, whoever's not getting their, their, their funding, which is really critical at this point. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not acceptable and, and call, call my office or your representative's office and, uh, and let's help get those pushed through. That's, that, that's the best I can do for you right now is, is put our weight behind it and, and push on as hard as you can. And, and Heather, I'll expect a call, um, about 10 minutes after this phone call is over with. Well, you know, to, to go back to my, my Henry story, he always used to say, well, that's better than a poke in the, than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. So. Yeah. Yeah. The, the good news is you'll get all the back pay, but when you need it now, you need it now, right? Who's, it's my money. I want it now, whatever, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I've reached the point where I, I had an 11 month pregnancy. My first child was born at 11 months. Okay. Way overdue and everything. And, People laugh, used to laugh at me because I'd say, you reach a point where you think, well, this is it. I'm just never going to have this child, and I'll just have to hang on to furniture to wake my way across the room from now on for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I'm kind of there with the unemployment. It's like, yeah, you guys talk a big game that I'm going to get a check one of these days. But you know what? I'm, I'm thinking, no, I'm just, it's just, yeah. I'm never going to see it. <laughs> and, and I agree with you. If it, it, was, it, it was me three months waiting, I, I, I'm about ready to give up on it, too. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, Representative, it has been such a joy to talk with you, and I'm serious about having so many more questions on my, my sheet of paper here. I wanted to talk about rural development. I wanted to talk about health care in rural areas. I wanted to talk about um, uh, what's the future for rural areas. And I also wanted to talk about, you know, the governor, of course, is getting criticism. I mean, any time that you guys are elected, you're open to criticism everywhere. But one of the criticisms that I wanted to address, and I'm not going to, is about his selection for committees and advisory committees, et cetera, during this time. So next time that we get together, um, maybe we can talk about some of those things. I'd love to. Um, this has been a pleasure. Um, like you say, it's just sitting back and having a conversation and, and sharing some information and, and asking some questions, and I love it. Um, this is what it's all about. Right now, I would be out knocking on doors if it wasn't for COVID, for, for my, <laughs> you know, and, th and that's yeah. that's where I'd be doing. i talking to people and listening to people and, and seeing what it's all about. I You know, this is great that they can hear me. Unfortunately, I'm not getting, uh, you know, you're kind of representing them with some of the questions, but I'm not getting all the details of all, all the folks in our district that I love to hear from. Um, and so that's what I'm missing right now, and uh, I hope to fully hear that uh, from folks as, as time goes on. Well, and before we close, why don't you give out your website or your phone call, phone number for the folks that are in your district that want to get hold of you? What, how would they do that? Yes. So, um, and this is bluntly, I'll be honest, um, this is where I run into trouble. Um, uh, I'm going to, because I... I all these questions you answered so eloquently and your website you don't know <laughs> no no i know it the problem is am i am i a campaign uh, am i running for re-election now or am i talking to you as a legislator 
And see, okay. this is the confusing part. And so I, I think I'm talking to you as a legislator, but if I give you that information, then I'm, then I'm crossing the line. So I'm going to give you my okay. campaign information well, well, just to be on the safe side, okay? Well, let me say it's in trouble for you. Um, if you go to the League of Women Voters uh, website, and uh, they have a wonderful online publication called They Represent You. And so just go to yes. League of Women Voters. Find they represent you, and you will find your name, uh, Representative Bill Ramos, in that list. And anybody who's listening can get hold of them that way. There. Did we avoid Super. any conflict? <laughs> there you go. They get get my, get my number, and I say call my assistant. It'll be, it'll be there, and or email, and and we'll get uh, we'll get working on whatever we can. Love to, uh, you know, you know, like I say, I, I don't necessarily know more, but when when we we push a little bit, we often get a little more response. So if you can use our office to do that for you. Let's let's do that. All right. Representative Ramos, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I do hope you come back soon. And thank you for listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. Local people, local music. Valley, 104.9 FM. The following newscast does not prescribe any medical advice, directly or indirectly, as a form of treatment for any medical problems without the advice of a physician or medical doctor. Welcome to That's Edible, I'm Daisy Oz. In this episode, I'll be presenting Nature's Serene Sedative, Valerian Root. Many people suffer from insomnia in today's stressful world. Besides making one tired, insomnia can lead to more serious health conditions like high blood pressure, accidents, poor cognitive function, and health issues. Valerian root is a herb that has been used to treat insomnia, anxiety, and stress for hundreds of years, dating back to the second century. Let's take a closer look at this serene sedative, valerian root. Valerian is a flowering perennial native to Europe and Asia. Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine, recommended it for sleep disorders. Fast forward to 1982, where a double-blind study was conducted on 128 subjects, valerian was revealed to be just as effective as prescription sleep aids, plus it increased the quality of sleep. This sedative route has been researched extensively, and though it's not as potent as some prescriptions, valerian is safer and has fewer side effects, like it doesn't have hangover or mental grogginess effects. Valerian also encourages deeper sleep because it reduces the time it takes to get to sleep and decreases motor activity during sleep. It is considered by many practitioners as the best natural insomnia treatment, and I can attest to this as it helps me sleep sound and deep. There are active components in this route that release the GABA receptors in the brain, which is what helps people fall asleep easier and stay sleeping longer. This tranquilizing route is also taken to treat anxiety and panic attacks because of its increased GABA production. And a study published in 2011 found that valerian root is also effective in treating OCD. Valerian is also a natural antispasmodic, so it relaxes muscles and joint pain, reduces blood pressure, treats migraines, and helps with menstrual cramps and menopause symptoms. And an awesome study on hyperactivity in children showed enhanced sleep, less impulsiveness, leading them to more calmness, focus, and feelings of happiness and satisfaction. What an amazing sedative from nature's backyard, valerian root. And yes, that's edible. 
My source for nature's serene sedative valerian root was obtained from herbslist.net. I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening. Be brave and add some edible plant medicine to your diet for healthier living. Check out my archive shows and more at daisyoz.com. That's edibles produced at Daisy Oz Productions in Chewila, Washington. My theme music was provided by Scott Holmes.